0: Oh, I love it so much. I was just thinking, I was going to ask you, can we give it up for the people who got baptized? Can we give it up for what God has done in this place? But then you did it without me. You did it anyway. I love that. There is no better reminder of why we do what we do than that right there. There is no better reminder of why we serve and why we give and why we invite than that, than lives that are changed now and for all of eternity, and that's what we get to be a part of together every single weekend, so way to go. To those of you who got baptized last weekend, goodness, you have been on my mind, you have been in my thoughts and in my prayers, and if there is anything that you need, please do not hesitate to reach out to your church and let us know. Well, today, I'm going to change the subject a little bit now. You guys ready to go? Yeah? Okay. Uh, It was about this time last year, following the death of George Floyd, that we did something I don't think we had ever done before in the history of Heartland. We called an audible, and we changed what we were going to talk about that weekend. And at the time... There, you know, this was not part of a series. We didn't have like a cool look or a graphic for it or anything like that. I had just gone to our staff and our elders and I said, I feel like we need to just push everything else back and we need to take a weekend to just simply talk about it. And they unanimously agreed, and so you might even remember, at that point, we were not meeting in person at the time, but our staff and our elders said, hey, if we socially distance, we would like to be in the room when you record that for our church family, and so that's what we did. And because we didn't have a title for it, just at the last minute, we said, hey, let's just simply call it, We're Going to Talk About It. Well, fast forward, uh, over the last 18 months, or whatever it's been, that we've been living in the twilight zone that is COVID 19. And clearly, the pandemic has impacted the way that we do ministry. It's impacted the church, it's impacted a lot of the things that we do in our ministries, and we've needed to flex and adapt and change and and kind of roll with it. And most of the communication over the last 18 months or so has come via my weekly emails, which if you don't get my weekly emails, let us know. We'd love to add you to them. But every Thursday, I send out an email to everybody who's asked for it to just simply say, here's what's going on in the church. Here's some things to know. Here's more information that you might not have gotten on the weekend. Here's some links to sign up for stuff. But we've communicated via my weekly emails. We've communicated via some snail mail letters that we've mailed out. I've filmed some short videos, and uh, of course, we've used social media as much as we possibly can since so many of us spend time there, and so we've tried to keep you up to date that way. But as many of you know, probably all of you know, last week, effective last Thursday, the Madison uh, Dane County Public Health Department issued a new mask mandate requiring everyone to wear a mask when indoors, regardless of their vaccination status. And before we said anything at all, the emails started to flow into the church. And I got a similar feeling to the one that I had last week, last year, and I said, okay, listen, I know that we're like a year and a half into this, but I think we need to just pause for a moment and to talk about it. And so again, the team said, yes, let's do it, let's go for it, to which part of me was super sad because this weekend I was so excited to kick off Heartland Chapter 3, where we're going to roll out the new vision, the vision that I feel like God has been percolating in me for the last six months, and I'm like jumping out of my skin to share with you because I think it's that good, and I think there's such an an exciting spot for you in that. But I just knew in my spirit that we needed to push pause, and we needed to just simply talk about it, and so that's what we're going to do together this morning. And so because we don't have a fancy title for it, or I don't know, maybe we're starting a new ongoing series, we're simply going to call this today, we're going to talk about it, Mask Mandates Jesus and the Church. Probably the first time any pastor has ever given that sermon in the history of the world, right? If you're joining us for the very first time, let me say, uh, especially if you're checking out church and religion in general, I think you chose a fantastic weekend to join us because what you're going to see today is just how relevant our faith is to our common everyday real world lives. Every once in a while, I talk to people who are kind of far from God or just beginning their spiritual journey, or maybe they don't go to church or know much about faith, and they just kind of think to themselves, or they've even said, you know, I feel like Christianity is probably just a bunch of rules and regulations, and you know, it doesn't have much application outside the walls of the dusty old church buildings. And when I hear that, I know in my heart, man, that could not be further from the truth, Because the things that Jesus taught and the way that Jesus modeled and lived his life for us speaks directly into the hottest topics in our culture today. The way that Jesus lived his life and what he taught actually informs the way that we engage in society today in every way, shape, or form. It could not be further from the truth to think that it doesn't apply. And so if you're brand new to church today, I'm so excited for you to see just how relevant our faith is. Now, before we get into the details of what I feel like God has laid on my heart, I want to make some disclaimers just so nobody feels like there's like an ulterior motive or something like that that really genuinely is not there. Uh, So first disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, okay? So nothing I'm going to say is intended to be taken as medical advice, I'm not gonna make any claims about science this morning. So if I say anything that you think I'm making a claim about science, there was a misunderstanding, I did a bad job communicating, but I'm not gonna make any claims, I'm not here to give you medical advice. In fact, I would argue you should not take medical advice from anyone other than a doctor you know personally, right? Do not get your medical advice from a doctor that you saw on TV. I would tell you don't get your medical advice especially from a doctor you saw on social media. And do not get your medical advice from a doctor that you know via six degrees of separation from Kevin Bacon or whatever that game is, right? It's like, you know, it's like, well, my mom's cousin's doctor told her who told my mom who told me. So I have it on strong medical authority that it's like, what? No, man, if, you're, if you don't know the doctor personally, if you can't talk to them, you probably should not be taking medical advice from them, okay? Disclaimer number two, I'm not a politician, So nothing that I'm gonna say today is intended to get you to vote a certain way. I'm not, I'm not a politician. That's not what I'm here for, right? I've said it before, I'll say it again. You can be a follower of Jesus and vote Republican. You can be a follower of Jesus and vote Democrat. I mean, really, you could be a follower of Jesus and vote for candidates from just about any other political party as well. You just will never win an election, okay? (laughs) But when we walk out of here, Later this morning, hopefully nobody leaves with the impression that oh, John's allegiance is clearly to the Republican platform or John's allegiance is to the Democratic platform. Hopefully when you leave here, you will, you will genuinely believe, oh, John's allegiance is clearly to Jesus and Jesus alone. I've got more disclaimers. I felt like I needed a lot today. <laughs> Uh, third disclaimer, I'm not here to tell anybody what to do, right? I think we're all pretty tired of being told what to do, so I'm not here to tell anybody what to do, right? I am, I'm here as a pastor offering the perspective of a pastor and how I think our faith informs the current situation and how we move forward, but I'm not here to tell you what to do. Uh, fourth disclaimer, I won't have time to cover it all. Right, this is a very, very nuanced conversation. I could talk about it for a long time. They give me 30 minutes, I'll probably take 40. There will be things that we won't be able to to cover, okay? So if you leave feeling like, well John, you didn't say this or this or this, just know that was the very next thing I wanted to say, but that's what got cut for time, okay? Fifth and final disclaimer, uh, I think today would be a good day to take notes. We're going to cover a ton of ground. I have a lot of thoughts. I'm going to throw them at you quickly. We won't have time to unpack them all. So today might be a day that you want to jot down some of these scriptures or, or things that I say to go back and process through. All right, with all the disclaimers out of the way, I do think that there is something we can all agree on. I think that every single one of us in the room, online, I think everybody in American society today has one thing in common I think that we can all agree on, and that thing that we have in common is simply the fact that we are over it. <laughs> we're over it, right? You can, yeah, you can clap and feel like I'm over it, right? In the, initially, we were all on board. When COVID hit last spring, for the most part, everybody was on the same page initially. Let's beat this thing and get life back to normal. That was last spring. Then it drug into the summer, and we thought, what in the world? This thing has drug into summer? And then we thought, well, surely it'll be over by the fall when our kids go back to school, which, of course, it wasn't. And that impacted our fall. We thought, well, surely it'll be over by the winter. It wasn't. It drug into the holidays and winter. And then finally, back last January and February, the vaccine came out. It got released, started to get distributed. People started to get the vaccination. And we thought, okay, finally, this is maybe coming to an end. This spring, things started to look good, which we were all on the same page. We were all so happy about that. But then this summer the new Delta variant came along and it feels like we might be starting the entire process all over again which is a terrifying thought and we're all just over it. We're just ready for it to be done so we can move on. But what's interesting is while I think that we're all on the same page in that we're over it, we're over it for different reasons and that's where the divide begins. I want to try to articulate how some people are feeling. Maybe this is you, maybe it's not, but some of you are over it because you've lost family members or loved ones. And if that's you, I am so deeply sorry. I do know people like that, and I know how painful that reality is. And so maybe you lost someone that you love, or maybe you almost lost someone that you love, and because of that, you have seen just how scary this virus can be up close and personally. And as a result of that experience, you feel like if everyone would just get vaccinated and wear a mask, we could finally beat this thing, but because some people are too stubborn or because they just don't understand science, they won't cooperate, and this thing keeps dragging on because of them, and you're over it. Others of you, are over it for very different reasons. You would say, look, even the quote-unquote experts don't agree on the science. Do you know how fast they rushed that vaccine to market? There's no way that thing got vetted as thoroughly as it should have been. Two years from now, when all of you sheep are growing third arms, I'm gonna be there telling you I told you so. (laughs) And you wonder about the effectiveness of a mask. Does the mask actually do anything? Of course, some people say yes, but there are plenty of other people who would argue no, it doesn't. Especially not when we're taking them on and off to eat and drink and blow our noses and we're touching things. Instead, you feel like what it surely is doing is giving our kids future respiratory problems. And then you're frustrated with the changing rules. Earlier this year, the slogan was vaxxed or masked. It was This idea that if you got the vaccine, you could finally stop wearing a mask. But now, that's not the case. At least not in our county. Now, it's masked regardless of whether you're vaxxed or not. The rules have changed. And you're frustrated by the fact that the rules change as soon as you cross the county line. You're like, where is the logic in that? And so because of all of that, you have the feeling of like, listen, I am a fully grown adult. I can make my own decisions and I am man or woman enough to live with the consequences and I'll let everybody else do the same, but everybody stop telling me what to do. I'm over it. And then others of you are somewhere in the middle and you feel like, I don't really know who I should be listening to or what I sh- should believe anymore. I'm just trying to do what I'm supposed to do so that we can all get through this and get life back to normal and you as well are over it. And so the question for us today is simply, how should a follower of Jesus engage in that climate? How should a follower of Jesus engage with our current climate. How should we engage when we're all over it, but maybe over it for different reasons? How do we move forward? What should we do? Well, again, I told you that I'm not here to tell you what to do today. Instead, what I want to do is simply offer four things that I deeply believe are true, four principles that I feel like I can point to in scripture, four four fundamental things about our faith four ways that our faith informs whatever it is that you choose to do. And so I simply, in the time that we have left, want to give you these four truths, these four ideas, these four principles. And number one, right off the bat, is simply a reminder that Jesus rejected the idea that we should look out for ourselves first. In the first century, the accepted belief was might makes right. Meaning that if you had the might, if you had the power, if you had the strength to do something, then you had every right to do it. It was the belief that if you could, then you should. But Jesus overwhelmingly rejected this idea. Instead, he said the single greatest thing you can do along with loving God is love your neighbor, not just love your neighbor, period, but love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was mind-blowingly countercultural in the first century. But that's exactly what Jesus called his followers to do, and that's exactly what he modeled for us. He modeled a life of laying down our own rights, laying down what's our, our own feelings and desires in order to pursue what is best for the people around us. Near the end of his earthly ministry, as Jesus was telling his closest disciples, not just the 12, but a small group beyond that, that he was going to leave them, that he was going to go to the cross, he was going to lay down his life, that he was going to be heading back to to heaven to be with the Father. Two of his disciples, James and John's mother, comes to Jesus, and she says, hey, listen, Jesus, when my boys eventually join you in heaven, could you give them the two thrones on your side, one on your right and one on your left? Could you give my boys seats of power and authority over every, all the other people, over the other disciples? And Jesus heard this request from this woman, and he was like, oh, my goodness, they still don't get it. And so like a football coach, he blew the whistle and he's like, okay, everybody bring it in, take a knee, I've got some coaching to do. And look, this is what he says to them, Matthew chapter 20. So Jesus called them together and he said, listen, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. But here it is, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just like I, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served. He's like, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to lay down his life for others. He said, look. We all know this is how the world works. We all know how everybody else in society operates. Those with power, those with positions, those with status leverage those things for their own benefit, but not so with you, not so with my followers. He said, my followers are going to stand out in society. They're not going to hunker down and be hidden and overlooked. My followers are going to stand out because my followers are going to be so different. He said, if you want to know how to be great in my kingdom, if you want to know how to be great in the kingdom of God for all of eternity, make yourself a servant. It's like he was saying, do you know how much a servant fights for their rights? Not at all because a servant understands they don't have any rights. That's how I want you to live. I want you to live as if you have no rights. I want you to serve others. I want you to look out for the good of other people before you look out for your own good. And then Jesus went to the cross to lay down his life for others what was good for them, what was good for us, and the early church starts to explode based on these followers of Jesus who stood out in society because they lived lives that were so different. People started to spread his teaching and people started to place their faith in him. They started to make Jesus the leader and Lord of their life. The Apostle Paul travels around the Mediterranean Rim and he starts to tell people about Jesus' teaching and the way that he lived his life. And people put their faith in him and he starts churches and he moves on to the next city to do it all over again. But he doesn't forget about the churches that he started in the past. He checks back in on them, he writes to them, he visits them, he sends messengers who bring messages to him from them and back to them from him. Do you follow that? And one of the teachings that people struggled with was this, this not-so-with-you teaching, especially the church in Philippi. It's like the church in Philippi sent a message to the Apostle Paul, and they were like, Paul, listen, we understand that you told us how Jesus taught taught his followers to lay down what was good for them in pursuit of other people, but listen, Paul, nobody does that. Are you kidding me? Nobody else in society does that. We have to do that. We have to be the only ones. And the Apostle Paul reiterates what Jesus had given to us. In Philippians 2, this is what he says. He says, listen, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, then do nothing out of selfish ambition. Wow. Doing things out of selfish ambition is like everybody's natural M.O. We are all hardwired to live out of selfishness. We know how to do that. It's looking out for our own interests. It's being self-centered, it's consumed with ourselves and what we need and what we have and where we're going and what we want. It's paying attention to things like whether or not we're getting our full share. It's fighting for our rights, but Paul says don't do that. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. What does that mean, that we should consider others better than ourselves? Does that mean that we should all walk around like Eeyore with our head hung down in shame because we feel like we're worthless compared to everybody else and we authentically feel like we are not worth anything? No, of course not. You, we say this all the time, but you are a chosen child of God himself. You have been made in his image. He created you because he has plans for you. He has a purpose for you and for your life. He has given you gifts and talents and abilities. He has poured out his spirit on you because he loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He has pursued you every single moment of your life. There is nothing in all of creation that has ever been created that is more valuable than you are. So what does it mean to consider others better than us? Well, it means to consider the needs of other people better than we consider our own needs. We wanna be people who ask the question, what's best for everybody else? To get real specific, we wanna ask questions like, what's best for the most vulnerable in our society? today, maybe that is asking the question, what's best for the seniors? What's best for those with pre-existing conditions? What's best for the kids? Well, Paul reiterates this in the next verse then by by adding to it, not only does he say that we should consider others better than we consider ourselves, but he says, everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. I think we could all agree that most people in our world look to their own interests way before they consider the interests of others, but not so with Jesus, not so with his church. Jesus rejected the idea that we should look to our own interests first. So I think as it relates to our current context, It means authentically asking the question, what would it look like to put the interests of the general population ahead of my own personal interests? And then once you've prayed about that and authentically asked God to bring clarity to you, after you've researched the answer, then you do it. Then you move forward in that regard, putting the interests of others ahead of your own interests. Now here's the key. When we do that, will we all come to the same conclusion on what is best? No, we won't. I wish that wasn't the case. I wish I could say if we all authentically asked the question, what would it look like to put the interests of the general population ahead of my own personal interest, and we prayed about it, I wish I could say that we would all come to the same conclusion, but we won't. There will be differences of opinions But that leads to the second principle in a beautiful way because the second principle that I would remind you of this morning is simply that your enemy is not your enemy. What do I mean by that? I mean that you have an enemy, but it is not who you think it is. It's not the people that you disagree with next door or at work or across the aisle. It's not the people that you've been arguing with online. Again, Paul reminds us who our real enemy is. In Ephesians chapter six, he writes, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Can I remind you this morning that we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Because there is a difference of opinions on how we should respond to something as significant as a global pandemic, we are tempted to see the people that we disagree with as the enemy. And I think that there are a couple of groups of people that feed into that, largely for their own benefit, politicians and the media. Now, please don't misunderstand me before you think I'm trying to crucify politicians and the media. I'm not. We need them both. We need both groups. They have very important jobs to do. I think we should pray for them. But listen, I want to talk about this for a second. I don't even know. What did I say? We should pray for them, right? Yeah, I mean that. We should pray for them. (laughs) But listen, there are a couple of groups. Like, There's this vibe where like the people who come to different conclusions on what is best becomes the enemy. I'm telling you, that's not the case. But these two groups do feed into that idea that they're the enemy. First of all, politicians. At their core, I wanna believe the best, and I think every politician wants to do what's best for the country, and they wanna solve the problems. But when the problem doesn't get solved, or somebody stands in the way of the solution they're proposing, who do they point out as the enemy? The other political party. They say, I would solve this problem if it weren't for them. They're the ones standing in the way. They're the bad guy. They're the enemy. Of course they're going to tell you that. At their core, they genuinely believe that, and at the end of the day, they want to get reelected, and so for them to get reelected, they have to convince you that voting for the other person, the candidate who represents the other political party, would be making a mistake, so they paint that other party as the enemy, and that funnels down to how we view and and see people who are sitting on the other side of the aisle from us. Same thing with the media, but for different reasons. You have to remember that the media makes money. They have a hard incentive to to sensationalize what they bring to you. The media makes their money based on revenues from advertising. Advertising is all based on how many eyeballs and how many ears they get and how long they keep them. Research has shown, the media is not dumb, they researched this, research has shown that the more dramatic or sensationalized the media is, the more it causes us to watch and listen. And so they know that the more dramatic their content is, the longer they will keep your eyeballs glued to their channel, their website, their app, or their Instagram. And so they, they have an incentive to stir the pot up, which does not help us come together. But consuming too much of the... the content from those two things leaves us feeling this overwhelming sense of frustration and angst with nowhere to take it out, nowhere to direct it except towards other people. But again, let me remind you that other people are not the enemy. The real enemy is unseen. The real enemy prowls around like a lion looking for someone to devour And as long as we're distracted thinking those other people are the enemy, we are not thinking about him. But you know what happens when we do that? Without ever realizing it, we give him little victories. We let him win little victories all over the place. So you know who's winning When you send an email to the school's principal because you don't want your kids to be forced to wear a mask all day, but the email is so mean and nasty that the person who gets it can only think, what a jerk. You know who's winning when we do that? The real enemy wins. Do you know who's winning when you post on social media that everybody not wearing a mask is too stupid to understand basic science? The real enemy is winning. Do you know who's winning when you stop associating with some of your former friends because you realize that you disagree with them politically? The real enemy is winning. Do you know who's winning when you sacrifice your own church engagement because you're trying to prove a point? The real enemy is winning. And do you know who's winning when you hear a talk like this and you can only think about all the other people who need to hear it but there's no self-examination? The real enemy is winning. Look, listen to me. There is a real enemy, but it is not who you think it is. It is not the masker or the anti-vaxxer. The real enemy is not the CDC, and it's not the local health department. Satan is the father of lies, and one of the biggest lies he is telling right now is that we need to cancel or shout down the people that we disagree with, but doing that does not solve any problems. It only makes the problem worse. We solve problems when we come together, when we seek to listen before we seek to be heard, when we try to understand authentically where is the other side coming from, and when we then look out for their interests just as hard as we look out for our own. But we can't communicate, we can't do that when communication only flows one way. We have to come together. Which leads me to the third principle that I think should inform how we engage today. I wanna encourage you to be careful not to let the need to worship online for a season become an accidental bad habit that lasts forever. Last year, when the coronavirus was brand new, nobody had any idea how deadly this virus would be. At first, we didn't know if we were dealing with another bubonic plague or something similar where you had a 50-50 survival rate. We just didn't know. And so we made the decision at the time that the best thing that we could do to look out for the interests of others was to voluntarily suspend our in-person gatherings and to move our services online. After about a month or so, the Safer at Home order came down, which limited us to 10 people in the room, effectively forcing us to move our ministry online or to keep it online at that point. And then even after Safer at Home ended, we still felt like staying online was the best decision for us and our faith community for the time being. We finally reopened the building for in-person gatherings at the end of January this year, beginning of February. That period of nine months was no doubt an incredibly unique time in the life of our church and churches all across the country. And one of the things that's come out of it, on the back side of it, is to see how cool it is to know that God was working that entire time that we were only online. As you saw from the baptism recap video last weekend, we got to celebrate with like 40 people who went public with their faith. And one of the blessings for me over the last several weeks as we prepared for that was getting to read the baptism testimonies as people wrote their stories when they registered to sign up, when they signed up to be baptized. And One of the things that stood out for me when I read those baptism testimonies was the reminder. It was the reality. It was an eye opener for me to see that the vast majority of the people who got baptized last week had found us online during the pandemic. Can we praise God for the fact that He was still working while we were meeting only online? Yeah. So God was working. But one of the unintended consequences of doing church online at home for nine months was that it broke the habit of getting up on Sunday morning, getting dressed, and getting out the door for church, and it lasted long enough for new habits to become deeply ingrained. And so now, as a result, I talk to people all the time who say, Man, John, I haven't been in church in forever. Not because anything happened, not because I'm mad, I'm not going anywhere else, I'm just out of the habit. And what I find so interesting about that is while we were very, very intentional to worship online for a season, now has people worshiping online, or not at all, very unintentionally. So I want to take just a couple minutes to address a couple of different groups of people. First of all, to those of you who have not yet been back in church in person, but you are going to restaurants, the grocery store, the gas station, your job, let's add Cabela's and Target to the list, the mall and coffee shops, I want to politely invite you back. (laughs) Look, we will... We will continue to offer Heartland Online and Heartland On Demand forever. It is a fantastic resource when you're sick or traveling or can't make it for whatever reason. It is such a nice thing to be able to join us live in the room on Sunday mornings and to worship with us. But here's the bottom line. You cannot fully replicate the in-person worship experience with an online experience. That's true for church. I would argue that's true for every single in-person environment. I was reading in an article earlier this week about how Broadway shows are beginning to reopen or beginning to prepare to reopen this fall. And in the article, they were interviewing Aaron Sorkin, whose play To Kill a Mockingbird was like setting records before the pandemic shut it down. And that's one of the plays that's beginning to reopen or beginning to prepare to reopen this fall. And in preparation for that, Aaron Sorkin wrote and and kind of created this this, uh, promo video to try to get people to come back. And in the article I was reading, the interviewer, the journalist asked Aaron why he created this, this dramatic video. And look at what he said. He said, I wanted to remind people what the audience experience is like, which we've been without for a year and a half. We've been watching things by ourselves in different places and at different times. So, I wanted to remind people about the audience experience of a whole group of people laughing at the same time, experiencing silence at the same time, gasping at the same time, crying at the same time, standing and cheering at the same time. That's an experience you cannot get from your laptop, and I couldn't agree more. I'm so grateful for technology that allows us to worship online when it's a necessity, but by and large, you just cannot recreate a worship experience on your own in your living room. Trying to stand and sing in the middle of your living room without the band and the lights and the chorus of people around you just doesn't work as well. You, you're standing there in your pajamas trying not to spill your coffee and you realize how bad your singing voice is and the dog just sits there barking at you the entire time trying to figure out what in the world you're doing. So, if you're out in public, but you just haven't been back because you're out of the habit, again, I want to warmly invite you back. To those of you who are worshiping or had been worshiping with us in person, but you've now made the decision because of the mask mandate that you will not be back until Dane County lifts the in-person mask mandate, I want to challenge you to consider who that's actually going to hurt. Will that hurt the government? Of course not. They don't have any clue whether or not you come to church because you have to wear a mask. Proving a point to them really proves no point at all. Instead, I would ask you to consider who it actually hurts. And I would say briefly, I think it hurts you. I also think it hurts us, those of us who are in the room, and I think it hurts the serving teams that you're part of, the group of people that you serve alongside with shoulder to shoulder to help create this environment for people from all walks of life. I want to invite you to consider coming back as well and to just really pour it on you. I'll just pull out the trump card. Aren't you so grateful that Jesus didn't let what was comfortable for him dictate his actions in his pursuit of you Aren't you so grateful that he was willing to wear a crown of thorns despite how uncomfortable it was because he loved you so much? Doesn't that make you say, you know what, if I have to wear a mask to worship him, I'll do it? Shouldn't that prevent us from any type of little inconvenience that would cause us to to feel a a speed bump on the road to worshiping him? I want to invite you back as well. So how should we engage in our current culture? Number one, remember that Jesus rejected the idea that we should look out for ourselves first. Number two, remember that your enemy is not the enemy. Number three, be careful not to let the need to worship online for a season become an accidental bad habit that lasts forever. And number four, however you choose to engage publicly, do it in a way that brings glory to God. In the middle of the first century, a dispute broke out among the early Christians, and the debate centered around whether or not they should be eating food that had been sacrificed to idols, especially when they were in the home of non-Christians. And the Apostle Paul addresses this question with a really logical, very middle ground, common sense approach. It's a brilliant answer. It's a brilliant approach, much like the one I've suggested for all of us here today. And um, (laughs) that was a joke. That was a joke. Um, But he summarizes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 by saying, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. This may be one of the single most important callings in the entire New Testament for us to remember and to live out. For us to, no matter what we are doing, choose to do it in a way that is glorifying to our Creator, to our Savior. So, can a Christian engage publicly? Absolutely. Can a Christian engage with politics? Yes, of course you can. In fact, I think on some level we all should. I think that's what it means to be a responsible citizen. You should pay attention to the issues and where different candidates stand on the issues. You should do your research and think critically and engage in conversations with people who don't share your perspective so you can understand where they're coming from. So yes, you can march, you can protest, you can speak up, you can sit in, you can get out the vote, and you can knock door to door. You can do all of that and more, but do it in a way that brings glory to God. Let other people see a difference in you versus all of the other people doing those things who are villainizing each other. Stand up for what you believe, but do it lovingly. So if you want to pull your kids out of the public school they're in and put them in a private Christian school because you don't want them to have to wear a mask all day, great, go for it. But don't burn down the public school on your way out the door. Don't act like all the people who are still sending their kids to the public school don't love their children as much as you do. That's not true, and that definitely doesn't glorify God. You know what does glorify God? It's coming together to meet other people in the middle. What glorifies God is tearing down the walls that divide us, not building them. What glorifies God is building other people up when other people have torn them down. It's doing life with people who don't look like, think like, vote like, and in some cases even believe like you do. Let's be those people. The last thing I'll say is that In 1527, the pastor and reformer Martin Luther was living in the German city of Wittenberg when the Black Death plague broke out. Immediately, people in the city started to flee to other cities for safety to try to create some social distance, but some stayed behind to care for those who were sick. Among them was Martin Luther. And the question arose among Christians how should we engage with the current pandemic? We want to trust God, but does that mean that we should stay here where the virus is, or does that mean we should get out of the way and socially distance to stop the spread? Martin Luther wrote a 14-page paper addressing these questions. You can read the entire thing online for yourself, but I want to read you his conclusion to to this paper, the final two paragraphs. This is what he said. He said, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I will fumigate purify the air, administer medicine, and take medicine myself. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order to not become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my own negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me. But I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person, but will go freely. This is a God-fearing faith, because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. I would suggest, if I may humbly, that we would follow the example of Martin Luther And even before him, the example of Jesus himself. Let's be people who reflect his character and the love and grace of Jesus to a world of people who need to see those things on display, who need to be reminded that they too can live that way. We can do this. Let's do it. Let's be those people. Let's set the example. Let's set the bar and let's continue the conversation. Unfortunately, this topic is not going away anytime soon, so there is still plenty of time for you to engage in it in a way that brings glory to God. There is still time for you to participate in a way that you will look back on someday with a greater sense of clarity of what happened in 2020 and 2021 and and maybe even 2022, and you'll be able to look back on it, and there is a way that you can live that will cause you to think, I don't know if I got it all right. Right? but I do know that I can at least say I put the needs of others ahead of my own. I remembered who the real enemy was. I was intentional with my habits and my actions, and I did my best to glorify God. And if you do those things, I don't care what the topic or situation is, you will be able to look back at yourself and how you engage with society around you in a way that makes makes both you and your Savior proud of you. Because living that way will always be relevant. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, this is not an easy situation to engage with. And so we pray that you would help us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect you and your character and your love and grace to a watching world. Lord, would the way that we live our lives and the way that we engage in society cause people to put their faith in you? How incredible is that opportunity to know that you work through our lives in that way. So Lord, would you use us and would everything we say and do be glorifying to you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray and everyone who agreed said amen. Hey, real quick, I know we kept you long, but before you go, if you have questions or comments or frustrations with anything I said, please feel free to reach out to me directly. I'd love to engage with you that way. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next Sunday.